Hello to everyone very graciously listening in right now. I'm Patrick Connor, and welcome to the Hannibal Boxing Podcast. Return listeners, first, thank you so much for coming back. But new, unfamiliar listeners, again, welcome. The usual fare here on the Hannibal Pod, which is the audio version of Hamilcar Publications, is a mixture of boxing, writing, hip-hop, jazz, true crime, and even a few other things. But during this episode here, I welcome writer and professor of philosophy at St. Olaf College, Gordon Marino. Gordon, welcome, and thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate your interest in my work, and it means a lot to me. Of course, in the course of doing my usual research, for the show. And in this case, it was just a simple internet research, but I see a bunch of your photos and forgive me, but in, in, in these photos, you seem to have a somewhat stereotypical professor look. Yet you're also a boxing trainer with years of experience in the sport. And at worst, I find that sort of duality or contrast interesting. Yeah. Yeah. There's all kinds of boxing, as you know. It's a very, and, you know, very fascinating people. And uh, yeah, I'm, a, I'm I'm kind of a maniac. My my kids tell me when they come into arena when I'm in the corner of somebody, they can hear me screaming from outside the door. So I have a little different persona there, probably. But um, I, I really find the the coaching and the teaching really go well together. It makes being a coach helps me be a better teacher, and being a teacher is helping me be a better coach. For example, I think I think it's really important. I had bad trainers, and um, it's really important that you know, when you train somebody, they have to learn something new all the time. You know, and uh, one of the things I did when I was a boxing writer for the Wall Street Journal for 17 years, and then for HBO, uh, an analyst uh, on the technique, I would always ask the boxers I interviewed, you know, tell me something, uh, tell me a good move, give me a boxing tip. And they'd always something would come right up and just bubble right up, you know, just give me one move. You know, like uh, Mike Tyson told me, uh, I've known Mike for a long, long time, but uh, one of his favorite moves was a, j- a hard jab to the solar plexus a couple of times. Then you paint the jab to the solar plexus. The guy should be trying to counter with the right, and you could catch him with the right hand. Hit him with the right hand. So it was always, uh, always asked for intimate technique, stuff about technique. Now, are you one of those people who has, like, childhood memories of watching or listening to fights, or did you come to boxing later? How did you get that start in boxing, as it were? No, I came to early. I was doing amateur boxing, and uh, but I was more involved in football. But uh, there was a lot of uh, fists, or at least uh, uh, hands flying around my house. A lot of violence in my home, and uh, it made good sense. Plus, my grandfather, my grandfather was a boxer. Uh, and uh, he used to teach me in the corner a little bit now and then, you know. So, I, but the violence in the household certainly uh, made me one. Uh, certainly attracted attracted me to boxing. I think I got pretty obsessed there early on. This might be a somewhat basic or remedial question for someone as immersed in philosophy as yourself. But do you think there's a connection between that earlier experience of violence with you and maybe a sort of proclivity or tendency toward an involvement in boxing? Yeah, well, I think uh, in order to be a good person in life, you need to be able to deal with uh, uh, um, things like anxiety and anger. 
and there's very few workshops for that. And I've always insisted that boxing is a great workshop for dealing with those emotions, learning how to control those emotions. You can't be a successful boxer unless you can control your emotions. And there's not many places in our society where we uh, get get an exercise in dealing with anxiety and, and rage. And uh, a lot of people in boxing come from uh, environments in which the those those emotions are pretty prevalent. And I was one of them. Is there a way to explain how that personal experience with violence isn't a sort of prerequisite for a lean toward boxing? That, that's true. I mean, there's, there are so many people that don't come from those kinds of backgrounds. But the vast majority of kids I've trained, and I've been training people for 30 years, uh, have, have an edge on have come from an environment in which they're missing something. Sometimes it's just uh, also they just don't get any affirmation. Like in, in order to be a, uh, in order to love yourself properly, in order to have a proper relationship to yourself, you need to love yourself in some profound way. And a lot of people come from environments in which there's no affirmation. Nobody's ever tells them they're good at anything. You know, go home and say yelling and screaming and go to school. You've got a chip on your shoulder and get in trouble in school and it's more crap go to the boxing gym and finally get some reinforcement. And I think we all need that sunlight of affirmation, which many kids don't get. And I've, that's one of the things that George Foreman told me. He was uh, told George a lot about this. And of course, you know, I used to question about his, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a minister and he was a, a master of uh, the knockout. And uh, one of the things he said was uh, one of the reasons he has a gym is because he said it brings together a lot of kids whose fathers or families are never around. Once they start boxing, they get this affirmation that makes them, that transforms them. And we see that with a lot of the great champions. Speaking to that desire to actually be in the ring in your training experience, does that ha- happen often that someone thinks they want to be a fighter and they think they want to train and then they quickly find out that it's, it's just not for them? Complain. I can't tell you how many people I've coached over the years that I want to be a boxer. I want to be a boxer. You train for months and months. They get hit a couple of times and they quit. And then a few months later, I want to be a boxer. I want to be a boxer. And like every every year, I'm like, I've had it with this stuff, you know. So yeah, the, the turnover on boxing is amazing. Well, beyond offering the kind of stereotypical outlet or escape or even opportunity, I think one thing about boxing that just about any person can relate to or understand is the the kind of fantasy or the level of fantasy and the desire to overcome something or someone in a very direct or visceral way. The idea of wondering what would happen if that were you in the ring. What could happen if you got in there and tried your hand at it? How far how far could you get? It's it's a kind of transcendence maybe that everyone can either relate to or really understand fantasizing about and circling back briefly to that sort of typical story of a poor fighter punching their way out of poverty while it's trite or played out as they say there are so many specific instances where we can we can point to that and that that actually happened that was the case that's right yeah and transcendence is the thing the ability to the the fact that you're able to overcome this terrible fear that everyone almost everyone has getting in the ring especially the first seven, eight fights, you know, it's quite, a, it's quite, and uh, it's, it, it's an amazing, uh, it's almost an amazing ritual in which the two boxers go through it together. Again, I've seen, I, I've had boxers like 13 years old, try to kill each other. One guy was a Mexican the guy. Most of the kids I train are Mexican and 
I think he was this white kid from Wisconsin. After the fight, they're hugging like they've been through something together, a ritual together, and they have, right? And they both transcended their fears. They did it together, you know. So uh, it's very important. It's very, it can be very, um, can give people a lot of, a lot more confidence, a lot more better sense of themselves. Gordon, having written extensively on Kierkegaard, what do you think he would have said about boxing and the human affinity for it? He he, he was a boxer himself, man. He was he was fighting all the time with. Uh, he was a a real firebrand, and that's one of the things that really makes me chuckle about some of the people in my field of philosophy who, are, oh my God, boxing is so terrible. Philosophy is an extremely violent sport because uh, what you do in there is, is uh, oftentimes a lot of it is involved with you know, someone works on a thesis for a couple of years and you try to tear it apart. You know, it's very violent, you know, and I, I'd much rather get a punch in the nose than have my work shown to be completely crazy, you know, wrong. So there's a real um, violent element to, to, uh, to philosophy. And, and, and Kierkegaard was a was uh, quite a fighter. What do you say about the human, uh, the fact that we'd like to see people hurt each other? I mean, Nietzsche said a lot about that. I mean, Nietzsche was very adamant that uh, we've, we're, we um, our unwillingness to recognize our, our thirst for violence, you know, our desire to watch violence, the beauty of it, even, you know. Uh, I mean, I had, I had a fighter uh, a few years ago that I trained at Pro in, uh, in California, and uh, he'd been knocked down three times, and he just wasn't going to win the fight. And I, I, I stopped in the middle of uh, the fourth round or something, and you know he was, and he was, crowd went berserk. I mean, the other guy wouldn't even shake hands. You know, but, um, I, I wasn't going to let him get hurt. And it's funny, Mike Tyson called me the day afterwards, said he did the right thing because now I'll blame the loss on you. You know, which is true, and he won't lose his confidence. But uh, yeah, there's this, this uh, look up the movies we watch, I and mean, they all have throat splitting stuff on there there's a real thirst to watch a real desire to watch people suffering you know it used to be alive now it's only in the movies there definitely seems like there's a sort of precision that's required for boxing to be what it is you have to annihilate an opponent violently but not too much or there's a problem and it has to be under this specific set of rules and you have to act this way before and after and there's definitely just cloudiness there in terms of the expectations yeah there's an ambiguity there i mean i don't when i'm fighters in the ring i don't concentrate too much on hurting the other person it's just on winning the fight but yeah it, 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 it's it's there at certain points definitely um and and uh i i, I think one of the problems in boxing with the fatalities and injuries is People let fights go on much too long, awful times. You know, I'm really, I find them just appalling. Um, sometimes, I mean, just when it's obvious the other person is just out class, getting, I mean, getting their brains rattled, and for what? You know, I mean, it's really terrible. Just because people want to see a knockout. All of the poetic outpourings, the writers talking about displays or human something or other, the visceral dramatic so-and-sos are those things worth what fighters are giving up for those things yeah but but in a lot of cases there it's not much of a display because people are sometimes so outmatched and the outcome is so obvious that it's not like you know uh ali fraser or something you know what i mean 
and and those you know, I just feel like those fights are just to to let those things go on sometimes. I think one of the what's one of the big problems in boxing is people were build a reputation on all these mismatches. You know, once people are just bored and get slaughtered, and uh, it's I, I have no problems with that. But on the aesthetics of it, it's funny because. I was very close to the manual store, and Angelo Dundee was one of my mentors. And uh, I talked with both of them about going to MMA, and they said, oh, man, no, it's too gross. I can't stand it. Both of them said it was too bad. And here's these guys who've been like, you know, two trainers who've been in, in the corners in absolute wars, right? And they said, oh, the MMA, just, oh, they didn't like the aesthetic of it. It was like a street fight for them. Well, the aesthetic of boxing, the aesthetic of fighting, for a long time, writers have been highly inspired by these sorts of things. So what did, what inspired you to write? No, I've been, I've been writing for years. I mean, uh, for, for a long time. So I've always had an interest in writing. And uh, the opportunity came to the Wall Street Journal and asked me to write on, uh, Mike, on, the issue, on Mike Tyson before the... Uh, before the Linux, when he was when he was when he lost his license, remember? And uh, so I, I wrote a piece for them and uh, um, got into writing about boxing from there. And mostly talking about um, trying to get bring people inside the ropes to talk about technique, mostly as opposed to a lot of the gossip and stuff. I was, I've always emphasized that being able to understand the art there. So uh, yeah, so those all those three things have always been gone together for me. Teaching, the writing, the coaching, and um, uh, well, I, I signed a pro contract in boxing. I guess in 1973, but I had such a bad, bad manager that uh, I was just getting killed with sparring with top contenders all the time, and uh, you know, so that's why I didn't, I didn't go on with it. And uh, I didn't. And uh, Freddie Brown was in the gym, Emil Griffith, and uh, I must have been like 20 years old, and it was. Think, oh man, I should have. There's so many places. And Freddie Brown, I think, was in the corner with Marciano for Charles, if I'm not mistaken. And I had his nose almost come off. And I think, oh man, if you weren't such a cool guy back then, you could have you gotten all these stories, you know. And, and um, so, and that was one of the things also that uh, affected my training. Was, uh, I was boxing first in the Gramercy Gym, and then I was at Gym. And, uh, and just the importance of teaching people stuff. Teaching, well, very few, very few good teachers out there. You know, okay, so move we're going to work on today. You know, like like this week, I'm working on trying to teach my kids a checkhook. You know, uh, but that really excites them more. And otherwise, they just get these bad muscle memories, and they keep making the same mistakes over and over again. You know, so I, I think the uh, learning new stuff is really important, and not all trainers are good at doing that. This mixture of philosophy and having to put together writing pieces for large publications, do you think that lends to a unique or different perspective when it comes to boxing and training? Mm -hmm. That's right. No, but also, I, I think with the, um, one of the things with the boxing writing is, I don't know, maybe you thought, felt this way too, but when I was younger, I kind of thought, oh, these great champions, it's all physical, you know? Man, as I got to know a bunch of them, they're so smart, so perceptive, and so unusual in their kind of insights and things. You know what I mean? I, I really, you, know, you always hear this thing, of, you know, uh, it's, it's so much 90% men and all that stuff. Well, that, that, that just seemed like bull crap to me. But, man, there is something special about uh, these great champions and their ability to see things in the ring, their percept, how perceptive they are. So it's been, that was quite a learning experience for me. 
You mentioned muscle memory earlier. So from a slightly more analytical perspective, and while my own ring experience, it's, it's limited to just amateur fights when I was younger, but nonetheless, it, it seems that many of the elite or higher level fighters that we're talking about are the fighters capable of getting away from just muscle memory, the, that rote learning of combinations and movements, and there's a lot of adaptation involved, like making adjustments and things like that. Would, so would you agree that there's a kind of separation or a different level between fighters who are able to make adjustments and not? Yeah, I just think, you know, once you get these bad muscle memories, you're in trouble because they're really hard to break. One of the big things with fighters I find that I try to teach a lot is the punching the other guy's punching. I talked a lot about this with Emmanuel Stewart, and uh, we agreed that uh, it's 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 a real key because you know you the great fighters aren't. It's not like I'm on offense, I'm on defense, which is what generally what most of us do when we're amateurs and stuff. You know, you just go back and forth, and to learn to that the, the seamless flow between um, offense and defense and punching when the other guy's punching. It's also the only way to beat somebody who's better than you. Because if the guy's better or faster than you and more technical, he's still open when he's punching, you know. And so if you're punching when he's punching, that's when you get your surprise knockouts, I think. And it's something, I, but it's hard. It's hard to find the right drill to teach that to kids to get them to do that because the our impulse when we're getting when we're getting uh, somebody's punching us is to put our hands up or back back up straight back straight up, you know. Well, on a, again, a more analytical level, it, it's surprising how many higher-level fighters have that certain kind of rhythm. It's as if the fighters agree that one goes, then the other, then back and forth at a sort of like understood or fair pace that's obviously not necessary, if not flat-out detrimental to a lot of fighters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's your favorite fight you've ever watched? That that's a good question, and uh, that's that's the kind of question where you ask somebody what their favorite movie is, and and it's kind of tough to to pin down pin down one or what their favorite band is. But um, if I had to choose just one, it would probably be even though it's kind of counterintuitive compared to you know when you consider that uh, Thomas Hearns is my favorite fighter of all time, Ray Leonard versus Tommy Hearns one. It's just a fantastic fight on a number of different levels. Um, it's an entertaining fight, an exciting fight, uh, but it's also a fight that you can watch from an analytical standpoint and see a number of different kinds of things, uh, role reversals and how to counter, how to lead, how not to lead, uh, you know, how to seize momentum and those kinds of things. And in and serious triumph, too, on Ray Leonard's part, even though I'm a Tommy Hearns guy. So it was a great fight. That is a funny experience going back in fights, which, you know, the winner, you're still hoping the other guy will pull it out. Yeah, it's funny. I talked to Emmanuel about that fight, and he told me that um, after that fight, he was Emmanuel said he was so distraught that he was in bed for a week until finally Tommy Hearns comes over the house and said, come on, Emmanuel, we've we got to get going again. You know, so it was Hearns that got you know, picked Emmanuel up after the, after Hearns lost that fight, you know, and uh, so it was really fascinating to kind of talk about that relationship, but yeah, yeah. I think my favorite was Ali Frazier one, man. Joe was my man. I loved him. That determination, that head movement, that, that resolve of his, beautiful person. Well, not such a bad choice, uh, 
considering a whole bunch of things. It was such a massive fight. It was watched by roughly 10% of the world's population at the time. Even just that, that's incredible. I'll tell you a funny, tell you a funny story. So I was asked to give this lecture at a Valparaiso Law School. I was an invited lecture to the law school students. So I thought I'd talk about um, the importance of commitment, right? So I decided that I'd show them um, – uh, a, a good part, a couple of rounds. So, and tears were coming out of my eyes, right? And then I turn around and I look at the audience. I go, this freaking guy is crazy. Human <laughs> law students. <laughs> and it was a rough night because, uh, but I was just trying to say, look at this, look at this love, look at them. They were both willing to die in there. You know, both of them, you know, and uh, I don't know what's it's perverse, but there's the, the beauty of that. The beauty of that level of commitment, but didn't go over too well with my audience. Well, if you love boxing or not, fights like Leonard Hearns won, Frazier Ali won, they're fights on a scale we just don't see very often. And those fights definitely ensure we're sated on a few different levels. Mm, mm. So beautiful and so destructive. So, so strange. I've heard people in war write about, um, this one book is Warriors on, but guys in war talking about a certain beauty, a strange beauty to it, you know? Yeah, it's so, so odd that something so violent could be beautiful. As I kind of alluded to earlier, that juxtaposition of violence and art or beauty, it's incredibly easy to find things about that to write about, it seems. So do you have any favorite boxing books? Oh, yeah, I would say uh, uh, um, Ghost of Manoa is certainly one of them. And uh, Carlo Rotella's uh, uh, book, um, I forget the title of it, was and Bruce Carlos is uh, unboxing is great. Um, yeah, quite a few. Well, you'd written a fantastic review of Todd Snyder's book about Drew Buntini Brown, so of course you, I have to ask for a, a little bit more detail. You read Buntini, and what did you think? I read the book as well as his other book on boxing in Appalachia, and I, I loved them, um, both of them. But on the, the Buntini book, uh, a couple of things I found really fascinating. Uh, um, so here's three things I found really fascinating. There's that scene where Bundini goes to that that Bundini could get in the Sugar Sugar Ray Robinson camp without knowing a damn thing about boxing is just, I mean that's amazing, right? Um, but when he goes to visit Angelo and uh, and uh, Ali and, uh, and I think it was I think it was in Louisville at the time when he when he probably well, maybe it wasn't, but uh, so. He, uh, Bundini, um, Todd writes that uh, Bundini pulled um, Ali aside and questioned all these uh, victories he had predicted. And, and um, you know, I beat Archie Moore in the fourth round, all that stuff. And uh, um, Bundini says, that's a bunch of crap, blah, blah, blah. And then uh, at the end, Ali kind of takes issue with him, but then Bundini puts his arm around him or something and says, you know, how you really feel? And, and Ali, for the first time I've ever heard, said he was really scared, frightened of losing. And you never hear that. You never heard that from him, you know? I didn't hear that from him. How he got that out of him and that, and that short interchange was, was really amazing, you know? I thought, and it's, again, there are many lines in that book that um, I'd never heard before. And I, I read quite a bit of boxing, about boxing and uh, been involved, deeply involved in the sport and so close to Angelo. And, uh, Another, another thing I thought was absolutely beautiful uh, was um, when Bundini uh, keeps calling uh, um, God Shorty. 
that was fast. That was lovely. That was so tender. And uh, then uh, he asked him why he calls him shorty. And he says, because he's for the little guy. What a, and that, that even gave a boon to my faith in a sense of thinking of God that way as surety as a, you know, it, it made, a, made me feel closer to God in some way. And I thought that was really touching. And so, uh, according, now he gets a lot of this, I guess, from, from uh, his, his son, but according to his son, during, during the fight, he would say, uh, Shorty's up there watching, come on. I, I mean, the Ali Frazier fight, for example, Shorty's up there watching, you know, uh, so that that, uh, that 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 was that was wonderful. Now, um, another fascinating part of the book was the last scene with Ali coming to um, visit Bundini when he was dying. Now, the the story that now a great writer Mark Cram, Mark Cram, and his uh, Ghost of Manoa, certainly one of the best boxing books ever. Yeah. So uh, um, according to Cram, uh, Ali wouldn't go in. Ali could said he couldn't take it, and it was big on that one, you know. And uh, according to uh, uh, Bandini's son, it was just it was the opposite. It was a Bingham, Howard Bingham that couldn't stand the sight of him, and and uh, it was Ali who went in and held him and uh, said, "You know, you're the one who made me the greatest." And uh, such a beautiful scene, so well done. You know, I mean, such a such a touching and quite a, a really different picture of Ali with a. Because Ali, you know, kind of this terror of death, of death anxiety and stuff like that. He was able to face up to him, sit with him, be with him, and uh, hold him, you know. And uh, uh, and uh, they, there's a place where they, uh, he said, rumble boy, rumble, the, uh, the rumble chant, right? And uh, that was an amazing scene, one of the best scenes I've ever read in a boxing book. And uh, really... Uh, Changes, changes the picture of Ali is because uh, you know some people paint him as somewhat superficial, you know, at some level uh, didn't keep up with people sometimes, and uh, that wasn't true, uh, and that was certainly clear in uh, in Todd's book, you know. And then I love the part where Todd asks Bundini's son, uh, "What would if would he like me?" That was really, so. There's a genuineness to Todd's writing uh, that I think is is really really powerful, and I I, I found that in his other book too, the same same way. Um, there's something very genuine and um uh, and uh, about it, but he asked uh, Bundini if uh, he would uh, would would Bundini have liked him, and he uh, he answers uh well he would have given you a nickname, <laughs> and he would have he would have given you a nickname, and and I remember just uh, it was funny for me because uh, all the Italians, especially all the, all the boxing people I've been around, nicknames and. and Angelo had a nickname for everybody, you know, at this point. So, so I thought that was really, really sweet. But a beautiful, beautiful book. A lot, a lot of tenderness, honesty, and and again the uh, the ambiguity. Of the, so, so he was such a fascinating character um, in the sense of his ability to move people, his wisdom, and yet had these uh, uh, had had these this terrible drinking problem, womanizing, you know, couldn't stop. You know, so quite a quite a picture of quite a strange human nature. You know what I mean? That someone that that was so powerful, so lo so loving, and and yet had these demons. You know, you know. I think it's an amazing book, the one that really needed to be written. Given that you're director of a library and you've written a few books of your own, it would seem you'd have a better grasp of what books should be written than most. No, I'm director of the Kidgard Library there, so I'm a, 
I run all these programs on Kierkegaard, have maybe 70 international scholars here every year in residence and I mentor a lot of people. So it's just the it's the Kierkegaard library. It's the best collection on Kierkegaard in the world, I think. You know, so um, that's uh, a battle of Kierkegaard. And so I've just written uh, a couple of years ago, probably this book, The Existential Survivor Guide from uh, Harper, which is uh, part memoir and part introduction to existentialism. And I hope people will read. It's gotten some really good reviews. And uh, it's both a memoir and intro to existentialism. So unusual there excellent those are books to be on the hunt for no question and gordon i really appreciate you speaking with me for a bit thank you so much oh thanks brother and you got you got such a clear voice it's fantastic got the perfect voice for this and good questions and uh i really enjoyed our conversation and uh uh wish, wish you the very best and hope to stay in touch thanks again gordon Great author Joyce Carol Oates wrote in her 1987 book On Boxing. It's a book Gordon spoke about earlier. As the philosopher is susceptible to sometimes disappearing into such abstraction that his subject can seem nugatory, quite literally nothing. So the historian at his most generous can assemble so many facts, details, quotations that the reader becomes lost in a plethora of somethings. I find this quote interesting as Gordon Marino specializes in philosophy, my interest is primarily history, and our paths certainly cross in boxing. The quote suggests philosophy and history are in ways complementary, or that they address things the other doesn't, perhaps, and peeling layers of boxing fandom back requires different levels of both. Ultimately, being a passive boxing fan requires just about as much effort as embracing the philosophy and history behind the sport. In any case, Gordon Marino is a valuable and likely unexpected resource in boxing. As a trainer, he manages to notice things the average observer can miss, but he has a lot of experience spending time with some of boxing's biggest names. Look up his books, starting with his earliest, Basic Writings of Existentialism, but also Ethics the Essential Writings, The Quotable Kierkegaard, and The Existentialist Survival Guide, How to Live Authentically in an Inauthentic Age. You can also follow him on Twitter if you'd like, his username simply being his full name, Gordon Marino. If you enjoyed this episode of the Hannibal Boxing Podcast, head over to HannibalBoxing.com and click Podcasts toward the top of the page. You can also subscribe to the show in your usual podcast apps and methods. But while you're at the website, sign up for the Hannibal Boxing Newsletter for exclusive Hamilcar Publications book deals and writing. Find Hamilcar and Hannibal on social media like Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And again, please do check out Hamilcar Publications books about boxing, hip-hop, jazz, and more. As for me, I'm Patrick Connor, and thanks for listening.